Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. There is a certain excitement and a sense of hope when a new agent appears that is designed to help with substance abuse. One such medication is the long-acting form of naltrexone. Dr. Aldo Morales is an addictionologist and psychiatrist in Southeast Florida, and we appreciate his time today to explain the nature of this medication. Dr. Morales, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Sometimes medications initially appear to be too good to be true, but this medication is not a replacement therapy as some consider methadone to be. This is a little different. What is naltrexone? What's the theory behind it? Tell us a little bit of its background. Naltrexone has been around for a while. Naltrexone was approved for the treatment of alcohol dependence as an oral agent back in the 90s. I think it was 94. And it was approved as a long-acting depot-type medication, monthly injection for alcohol dependence in 2006. And now the same monthly injection is now approved for opioid dependence in, in 2010. So it's gone through an evolution. We liked the monthly injection because of the problem with compliance especially with this particular population. You know, we rarely take a full course of antibiotics because of compliance issues. Imagine an addict being compliant with the medication that threatens their very addiction. So we like the monthly injection idea. We have found that naltrexone was effective for alcoholism because the opioid receptors are indirectly involved in the reward aspect of one's response to alcohol. Once we began to use naltrexone for alcoholism, we extrapolated from that and began to use it for opioid dependence with the theory that if we block opiate receptors, the mu opioid receptors in an opiate addict, if they use, they will not get the stimulation. The receptors will not light up like a Christmas tree. And by not getting high, it gives them a chance to get right back on track. We also find that with time, when, when they're on naltrexone therapy, their cravings reduce. Wasn't this medication, or isn't it somehow related to a medication that many people know as Narcan? It's given in emergency rooms for opiate overdose? Yes. Narcan and naltrexone are two different chemical moieties. And Narcan is the parenteral agent, mm-hmm. whereas naltrexone you can take orally. In this case, it's used intramuscularly. But Narcan is what you get in the ER for an opioid overdose because Narcan and naltrexone both have a very high affinity for the opioid receptor. And if there's something else in there, naltrexone or Narcan will displace it. We don't use the naltrexone for emergency treatment because it's not as as quick acting as the IV Narcan. But the theories still are very intimately attached. Yes, because naltrexone is inert. It is an opioid antagonist. So what it does is it sits on the opioid receptor like a lump on a log doesn't do anything, merely occupies the receptor, but in so doing, prevents the patient from having any kind of response to any opiate they might take. What intrigues me and always has since I've started to learn a little bit about naltrexone, and I'm sure people are equally, I guess, intrigued, and maybe we could even go so far as confused, it seems that alcoholism and opioid abuse are so similar that the same medication can fix both diseases. I find that amazing. There is a common thread to the whole addiction theme where dopamine is a mediator in the pleasure centers, in the pleasure neural circuits that we have. Ultimately, dopamine is the ultimate neurotransmitter involved, but it is not surprising that the opioid receptors are involved in pleasure because we have natural opioid receptors. What makes it unique is that it is an inert product in the brain. It doesn't produce any analgesia. Such as methadone. Yeah, it does not alleviate pain. The patient will not get high on naltrexone. The only thing a patient will experience on naltrexone is meiosis, pupillary constriction. That's the only way you would know somebody's on naltrexone. That's the only obvious sign that you might perceive. But otherwise, it's totally inert. Let me draw an analogy here. There are three types of actions that can occur at the opioid receptor. One is a full agonist reaction. 
I mean by when a drug attaches to the opioid receptor. This is a full agonism, a partial agonism, or an antagonism. Those are the three possibilities. I'll draw an analogy to a key opening a door. A full agonist is, imagine you insert the key in a lock, and you turn the key, and the door opens wide open. And that's a full agonist, and that happens with methadone, heroin, hydrocodone, oxycodone, all the high-powered guns, all the addictive stuff. And there's a partial agonist action. That would be like when you put the key in the lock and you turn it and the door opens halfway. That's like buprenorphine or Talwin, pentazosin. You get some response, but not the full-blown response. And then there's the antagonist action. That would be akin to inserting the key in the lock and you try to turn it, but nothing happens. The door doesn't open, the lock doesn't even turn. And that's what naltrexone does. It blocks the receptor so that no other key can get in there. Nothing else can get in there. Naltrexone has a very high affinity for the opioid receptor. So if a patient is on naltrexone and they use a full agonist, like heroin, methadone, oxycodone, any one of those, the agonist cannot get in there. It cannot exert an action. It's like they took a hit of something, but it doesn't do anything. And they have time to say, well, that was a close one. Let me get myself back on track. Gives them a chance to not relapse. That raises a question, and we'll get to it again later perhaps, but if someone is intent on getting a high and they can take one dose and they don't feel it, they'll take a second dose and a third dose, and all of a sudden they'll overcome whatever blockade there is. That's correct. That's an inherent risk of the product. I warn my patients about it. Furthermore, when a person has been away from opioids for a while, whether by virtue of just being abstinent or whether by virtue of being on naltrexone for a while, their tolerance decreases. And if they go back to using, and if they use the same high amounts they used to use before, they now have a potential overdose on their hands. So they become medication naive in a funny way. That's correct. So they need to be warned about that. There is a theoretical possibility that a patient will try to overcome their naltrexone blockade by repeatedly administering more and more hits of a full agonist and potentially result in an overdose. I don't think that's likely to happen. Usually the patient will probably either run out of money or run out of the full agonist or they'll fall asleep before anything else might happen. That is a theoretical possibility and I explain that to my patient. When would someone start to consider the use of the long-acting naltrexone after they failed on methadone, after they failed on other treatments, or is it more or less a first-line treatment? It's a first-line treatment. It's one of the many options available. The only thing we want is the patient to be opioid-free for seven to ten days to make sure that we're not displacing an opioid. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that the patient has, has undergone detox. They're not in danger of us precipitating an acute withdrawal by administering naltrexone to somebody who's already got opiates on board. So someone comes to you and they say, hey, Doc, I'm ready to stop using heroin or whichever the opioids they're using. You have to set them for a detox first. Yes, they have to be opioid-free either by completing a detox or by self-detoxing. They have to be opioid-free for seven or ten days, and then we can administer naltrexone. How quickly does it take effect? It's a great question. We get a peak at about two to three days. It takes effect in the first injection. We reach steady state by the second injection, second month. We see benefits right off the bat. And the question attached to this is how long does a person stay on this medication? The FDA approval for the drug was obtained after a six-month study. I like to keep the patient on for a year. There is a significant anniversary that occurs around the year mark. You know, we have a built-in clock that reminds us of the seasons, anniversaries of deaths and, or important events, etc. And there's a little turbulence that we sometimes see as a patient approaches a one-year mark. So I usually like to keep it a year. By then, the patient should have developed some good coping skills, and we can try being off the medication. A lot of young women, unfortunately, also have opioid problems. So if a young woman is using opioids, is there a contraindication with pregnancy here? Is it safe with pregnancy? It is not safe. It is a Category C. So that becomes an issue that the counselors have to deal with yes. very aggressively beforehand. 
What about older folks? We keep hearing about alcoholism in the older folks. Is there any data or experience yet in, in the elderly with this? The FDA approval is for uh, 18 to 65, I believe. I'd have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. However, I wouldn't hesitate to use it on an older person as long as hepatic function was not compromised. Mm -hmm. So is it basically a safe drug, I mean, in terms of liver, kidney, other problems like you just talked about? It has a black box warning for liver problems. Some years ago, naltrexone was being studied as an appetite suppressant. You know, we've used naltrexone for so many different things in, in medicine. For appetite suppression, it was studied at a dose of about 300 milligrams a day, and there were some in instances of hepatotoxicity. The dose that we use for opioid dependence, the oral dose is 50 to 100 milligrams a day, usually 50, much lower than the 300 required for liver problems. And if we use the, the Vivitrol, which is the, the parenteral monthly injection, we're only using 380 milligrams per month because you're bypassing the first pass metabolism, going direct parenterally. So the actual exposure to naltrexone is a lot lower if you use the parenteral than if you take it orally. What about the specifics of getting this? Can any doctor administer it? Is it only limited to addictionologists? Are there any such restrictions? There are no restrictions like there are with Suboxone, for example. They have to be registered for Suboxone. Any doctor can prescribe the Vivitrol, but it is not dispensed as a product, but rather as a specialty item or as a procedure through specialty pharmacies. For example, one would petition the patient's insurance company to approve the product, and then once they approve it, it is sent through a specialty pharmacy directly to the doctor's office for administration at the doctor's office. It's supposed to be administered by a healthcare professional, not by the patient. What happens if someone gets sick during the duration of their use of the long-acting naltrexone and needs narcotics because they are having surgery? What, what happens in a situation like that? Well, there are various options. Number one, if you can avoid surgery with, with an opiate uh, anesthetic, for example, use a regional anesthesia, epidural block, use NSAIDs if you can, uh, steroid. Discuss with the anesthesiologist or the surgeon to see if that's an option. If it's not, the anesthesiologist needs to know that the patient is on naltrexone, and they will have to use higher doses to overcome the blockade. If you want an anesthesiologist on hand, the patient will need to be intubated or may need to be intubated depending on the procedure. Uh, if you're trying to overcome a blockade, you want an anesthesiologist to handle that. A patient can carry an ID card or a bracelet, for example, identifying that they are on this product. So if they're ever unconscious, in a motor vehicle accident or something, for example, uh, they have some identification that tells healthcare providers that they are on naltrexone, and if they require any kind of emergency surgery, the anesthesiologist will know that. How effective is it in terms of one of the tools that you have to deal with some very nasty and often very difficult to treat problems? The effectiveness of this particular tool is as follows. The study that, that gained the drug, the FDA approval for the monthly injection, was done in a Russian population of hardcore heroin addicts with a high percentage of HIV as a comorbid condition, high percentage of hepatitis C also as a comorbid condition, a real hardcore population. And it was a six-month study that, that was looking at the primary endpoint as the number of patients that remained opioid-free for the duration of the six-month study. The injection combined with psychosocial support. It wasn't just an injection alone. And the numbers were 36% opioid-free at the end of the six-month period versus 23% with a very high confidence p-value of 0 0.022. Those are really pretty good numbers. Mm -hmm. that's, that's right. If we step back from the discussion of the long-acting naltrexone, how are we doing overall in the treatment and the control of alcoholism and opioid addiction? One reads about it endlessly. Are we really making much progress or have we, are we getting stuck? We are taking baby steps. 
We're not making much progress at all, but you do hear about it more so now in the news. There are celebrity deaths that we have to contend with uh, in the news. There was Whitney Houston recently. Michael Jackson was not too long ago. But for every Whitney Houston or Michael Jackson that is dying as a result of addiction, there are so many others that we don't hear about because they're not famous. So we have an epidemic, actually, right now, a resurgence of an, the opioid use, and not so much heroin, but the prescription pills. We are not doing very well. We are losing many patients who are inadvertently dying due to taking a little too much or mixing it with other CNS depressants. We also see patients having all the negative consequences in their life, be it their personal life or their professional or work life, as a result of addiction problems. Society is not ready to perceive addiction as a medical issue. The ASAM, American Society of Addiction Medicine, recently issued a new definition of addiction, which identifies it as a brain disorder that affects decision-making processes, etc., and keeps the patient going back for more. Most patients I've treated reach a point where they don't want to be addicted anymore, but they find that they can't stop. I never met a patient who said to me, I always wanted to be an addict. Nobody ever wants to be an addict. They evolve into that. Medicine has always turned a blind eye to that problem, and that's why AA was founded by uh, a layperson. Now we're beginning to try to medicalize addiction. We're at the infancy stages. And a lot of times people who are troubled with addictions, they get the word a label, shall I say, they they get the label that somehow they're just irresponsible. One of the things that's so complicating is that there are people who take these same medications for very legitimate purposes. So where do we draw the line between what is addictive behavior and non-addictive behavior? That's a great question. There's a genetic vulnerability that the someone may inherently possess, and those individuals will be at risk for progressing to addiction if they're introduced to addictive agents. In, their, in part of their medical treatment or in alcohol or something. The other aspect of how to recognize addiction is as follows. The addict has a love relationship with their drug, and that is not apparent in someone who takes a medication without the addictive component being active. For example, there are many people who develop physiological dependence on opiates, for example, because they've been taking it for a long time. Physiological dependence does not necessarily equate to addiction. A patient could be physiologically dependent by virtue of having taken the drug for X period of time. The distinction with addiction is that the addict has a love relationship with the drug that is absent in the person who is not addicted. We also see sometimes what's called pseudo-addiction, a patient who is over-utilizing their painkillers for the purpose of pain control, as opposed to the addict who is over-utilizing the medication either to uh, get high or to escape their problems, but not necessarily for pain control which makes it even more important that the diagnosis be correct before we apply the label, the importance of getting an accurate diagnosis so that someone who is legitimate isn't denied access to the medications, but someone who is not using it for legitimate pain control drifts off into the world of addiction. It must be very challenging for you at times. It was initially, when you've been doing it for a while, you develop the skills to differentiate the two conditions. And oftentimes I get a patient referred to me being labeled as an addiction problem, and we realize that it's not necessarily addiction, but it's pseudo-addiction. What I heard you say, although not in so many words, is that we really do need to put some serious money into further research. Yes, we need to continue with the medicalization of treatment of addiction. Dr. Aldo Morales is an addictionologist and psychiatrist in Southeast Florida. We appreciate your time so much today. Thank you for being with us. This has been really interesting, and I hope people can get a handle on this new treatment. It's actually a new form of an old treatment to 
help them proceed with the psychosocial elements in order that they can get back onto a better track in life. Thank you so much. You're welcome.